Welcome to PSQH the podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, editor in chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talk to Algene Karalia, vice president of integration and sustainability for the Crisis Prevention Institute about workplace violence in healthcare. And now, on to the interview. I'm joined today by Algene Karalia, vice president of integration and sustainability for the Crisis Prevention Institute. Welcome to the program, Algene. Thank you, Jay. Good to be here. Great to have you. And I was wondering, um, you know, we're going to talk about workplace violence in healthcare, but I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, CPI. Well, uh, you know, the Crisis Prevention Institute has been around since 1980, so well more than 40 years. And in fact, our flagship program, Nonviolent Crisis Intervention, uh, actually came into existence uh, right around 1975. So oh, wow. uh, what's interesting about CPI is that uh, you know, we are without question the worldwide leader when it comes to providing workplace violence prevention training, de-escalation uh, training for staff in a variety of human service fields, especially within the healthcare arena. In fact, the program itself was really designed specifically for uh, acute psychiatric settings and uh, quickly was uh, adopted within uh, healthcare organizations. Uh, so we've been very su- uh, successful and very blessed to have uh, trained more than 15 million people globally. Uh, and as an organization, you know, we really see that as our mission is to provide uh, the training and understanding to help make uh, work environments safer for uh, staff members, for in this case, patients uh, and the families that they serve. Excellent. Uh, as well, for myself, I've been with CPI on this current stint. I've been with us uh, for about 11 years. Uh, I've actually had more than 40 years of experience with this content uh, and, and I've been, again, very fortunate uh, in that the founders of our company, uh, w- one of which was my father. And uh, so I've been involved uh, even in some of the development back before CPI came into existence. Uh, for me personally, I've been able to apply the content and our, our approaches uh, in a variety of settings, whether that was in the healthcare arena or uh, in uh, uh, law enforcement and corrections, uh, residential treatment, and even done consulting work globally uh, around uh, our specific uh, approaches when it comes to uh, crisis intervention uh, and crisis prevention training. Obviously, uh, workplace violence in healthcare is a big issue, but can you sort of describe the scope of what you're seeing out there right now in terms of workplace violence? Well, without question, it is a a huge issue. Uh, One of the things that we know for a fact is that the vast majority of workplace violence events are going underreported throughout the country. And uh, that's alarming, especially when we think about the current statistics. Um, You know, over 77% of healthcare workers, they see workplace violence as a priority. Concurrently, we know that uh, 80% of violent events that occur, according to OSHA, occur uh, to, uh, to healthcare workers. I mean, this outpaces every other discipline, whether we're talking about law enforcement or corrections or treatment facilities, uh, it is a huge issue and it's having an impact on the entire industry, not only from the standpoint of the ability to staff floors, the ability to uh, bring staff in where they feel confident uh, in being able to perform their jobs, uh, the recruiting, uh, it's just been such a huge uh, issue for so long. It's coming to light now, and we know that there's a lot of energy and focus around addressing workplace violence issues. Uh, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm 
there's not a city that I visit where uh, it's not top of mind or there's not an issue or uh, a news article coming out about an event that now recently took place within that city. Uh, you mentioned recruiting. What's the impact of, of workplace violence on staff recruitment and retention? I think it first starts with retention. Uh, I mean, just think about it. If I'm not confident in my job, if I don't feel uh, safe in what I'm doing, why would I possibly want to go into uh, into work? And so we're seeing that retention is becoming a, a significant issue. Uh, I know that there was a recent survey that went uh, out in, uh, you know, we, we heard that uh, in, in this survey, many times, the staff members were actually considering leaving the position within the healthcare arena. And this isn't just nurses, we're talking about providers as well and allied health professionals. Uh, so there, there's a, a significant impact on the ability to really retain staff. And then when we think about when I lose a staff member, what does it cost? What are the average costs when it comes to, to uh, uh, turnover? You know, I know that, and this is super old data, but I, I can still recall uh, the salary uh, or the cost to replace a nurse was somewhere in the neighborhood of four times the salary of a single RN. And this is for a first year new nurses. Consider now if you, uh, the, those uh, professionals who've been in the industry for long periods of time and they are just experiencing the burnout. They're afraid to come into work. Uh, and, you know, no one should come into work afraid no one is expected you should be expected to cast themselves on that sword um what are some of the factors that are contributing to this to this rise in violence well i think that without question many that you know the first thing that many people are going to say is well this is an output of covid uh and while there's no question that the stresses of the uh the pandemic that, that were placed on our entire healthcare system you, know, you you can't minimize those uh, those impacts. Uh, one of the things that I'm that I'm seeing and I'm hearing most frequently is that it's really boiling down to shortage in resources, and those resources include time, money, and staff. Uh, but I think that one of the things that's also con uh, contributing to it significantly is that, uh, from a leadership perspective. The, uh, addressing workplace violence seems to be the purview of strictly the security team or perhaps it net, uh, nurse education. And I would argue that, in fact, this is really an issue uh, uh, that really needs to be at the senior most levels within an organization because this is, goes well beyond just giving some training or, you know, providing some quick tips uh, on a poster to, to your staff. Right. It really comes down to creating a culture, a culture that is not only responsive to those potential threats, but quite frankly, that they are proactively looking for ways to minimize, uh, you know, minimize the uh, elements that help to escalate or create these kinds of situations. Uh, now, a lot of times people think of that as as procedural things, and you know, or patient experience, and that's true. Patient experience certainly does have a bearing there. Uh, However, I'd also uh, suggest that when we really enable staff to be able to understand what's taking place when someone is engaged in disruptive distress or even violent behavior, if we recognize that early on, we have the best opportunity to de-escalate or at the very least decelerate 
slow down that situation, giving our staff members not only a chance to uh, you know, respond accordingly, and it also gives quite, uh, many times the person in crisis, what we call crisis, it gives them a chance to regain control of their own behavior. Uh, and I, I think that all of us can look back to a time when we may have behaved in a way that was out of norm. It was not our normal personality. And in fact, there's a lot of embarrassment that goes along with that. Well, sometimes time is one of the most powerful tools to help someone regain their own composure and their behavior. Is it is the key really to look for look and detect warning signs before something gets out of control? I think that's the initial step, absolutely. And but what's interesting about that that question is that. Many times what we're doing is we're putting the onus, the responsibility on the patient or the person who's going into crisis. And I'm not saying that they don't have ownership or uh, responsibility there. What I would also suggest, however, is that in every interaction, whether it's between a patient and a nurse or a practitioner and a family member, or it's between myself and you, all of us have ownership in the outcome of that event. Uh, and because I can't control your behavior, what I know I can do is control my own behavior, control how I approach the situation. And part of this is reading how are you, how's Jay responding to me? What kinds of things is he saying? How what are his nonverbal cues or signals? And being able to recognize those to and and really internalize them to say, you know what, I may be actually escalating this unknowingly. So let me change my approach. It's that kind of awareness that is more than just saying what's happening with this person. It's saying what's happening with this person and what's happening with me? How, what am I doing? How am I in, you know, being impacted? What are my triggers, if you will? Or is there a catalyst uh, to me be, becoming even more uh, uh, resistive or you know, letting us get, get pulled into a uh, power struggle? Yeah, what would you say to those organizations who you know, feel like the answer is bulking up on security staff, arming security, you know, kind of getting a more militaristic solution to uh, to the issue. Yeah, I think that there are a number of organizations that want to take that particular approach. Uh, with everything, there's some element of risk. Uh, the first thing that I would say to the, the organization is really ask the question, well, let's, let's look at what your data is saying. Do you have good data? Or is this a an anecdotal gut reflex to a, 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 partic a particular problem. Uh, one of the things that we do very successfully here at TPI is that we've been able to uh, work with healthcare organizations across the globe uh, and map risk for every employee based on uh, a multi-dimensional uh, assessment. And then we start to fold in, uh, when possible, we start to fold in incident data to see what, you know, are there particular trends that we can identify? And in doing so, what we are, what we're able to do is apply what we call our 4D process, where we discover, we diagnose, we design, and then we deliver a, a training methodology that really supports the needs within the organization, as opposed to taking a peanut butter approach where we're going to say we're going to do all the same thing across the board without any real understanding of what the unique qualities or nuances that exist within the organization. It, you know, we want to make sure that we're, we're creating a, an environment that really meets the needs of the organization. Yeah, because I mean, I imagine, you know, you, you 
go around the country and you, you know, or the world even, and, and sort of, you know, work with different organizations, you must see a lot of different sort of situations, whether it's, you know, whether it's different types of patient, patient population, different areas, different, you know, uh, uh, just the, I guess the environment is different, uh, you know, culturally or, uh, financially, it must have all those factors must play a big role in sort of how violence emerges. It sure does. And, you know, without question, you know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, there's, there's a challenge around resources, you know, there's always going to be competing demands on those resources of time, people and money. And, you know, so you need to be able to say what's going to work out best for us. And we come into organizations that have very mature workplace violence initiatives. Uh, we have ones that uh, are uh, very early on into their journey around workplace violence. And I think a key word there is journey. This is not something where you just say, we're going to set up a committee and, and then we're going to tick all the boxes and, you know, and we'll finish off uh, this task and move on to the next, next thing. In reality, it's a journey. It's one in which there's a continuous assessment as far as where are we at, where do we want to be, what's our vision, and how do we continue to make improvements? It's a, it's a continuous process. Uh, what's fascinating to me is that while I shared there are different organiza organizations or different places within that journey, there's no real rhyme or reason as far as um, whether it's an academic medical institution versus a community-based health care system or a health center or in it really there's there's no, no no specific one that says one group is ahead of another group it really comes down to that individual organization and the leadership that's being provided within that organization um and you know we've been primarily talking about violence from patients and visitors but there's also the issue of violence uh from staff uh you know to fellow coworkers. Uh, do organizations need two different plans to deal with those different types of, of uh, situations? The short answer is no. And the, re and the reason why that is the case is because we're, at the end of the day, we are always dealing with human beings. Human beings are dynamic. They are, uh, you know, uh, they have their own particular needs and drivers. And as such, whether I'm dealing with violence that may be taking place between a patient and a patient, patient and staff, or family members, or between coworkers, all of the approaches that we utilize really have application across the board. And uh, interestingly enough, that's why we've seen a number of health, uh, human resource professionals really being the leads when it comes to um, implementing uh, our content, because they recognize that this is not just a healthcare provider, patient or family issue, there are issues that are taking place between our staff and uh, we want to make sure that we understand that. It also goes back to data and really uh, just lowering the ba barriers to being able to report the data, to be able to say, I had an event that took place between myself and a coworker and the willingness to document that is a pretty high barrier because I, you know, I'm going to have to work with this person, and you don't, you know, most people inherently don't want to cause trouble within their work group. However, I think it is also important to be able to have mechanisms in place. These are the functional elements that are necessary uh, to have good data and understanding of what's taking place. 
Yeah, I imagine that in a lot of instances, the data may not be completely, may not be complete just because of that fear of reporting, you know, because fear of repercussions, you know, if you're, you know, uh, and, you know, if it's against your superior or something like that, where you don't want to be, you know, uh, want something to be taken out on you where you won't, won't advance or you might think you think might lose your job. So, um, you know, what can, what can organizations do to kind of improve that situation so people feel comfortable to report these kinds of incidents? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the first element is really helping people understand how to access those, those tools. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier that there is a, a fear, a genuine fear that if I report my manager or a coworker that there might be re repercussions. And I think that there are, you know, uh, there are a number of laws in place that really protect, uh, you know, those whistleblower laws will protect staff. It's interesting to me how sometimes staff even have a perception that reporting patient violence uh, may result in uh, repercussions. So, you know, one of the first elements, you know, we talk about education all the time. Uh, however, it's really educating people to know how to access, giving them uh, practice in actually accessing uh, these tools, I think is a significant first step. Once you're able to get down that pathway, then opening the doors for the potential staff on staff event uh, opens up, it opens up those other opportunities. Uh, but I think that you know many times you have to be able to start with sometimes the lowest hanging fruit, and sometimes that really uh, starts with uh, understanding what's happening with our patients and visitors. Um, so when you're talking to folks in leadership positions, you know what are you telling them about how to make violence prevention programs more effective? I think that the programs themselves need to be multidisciplinary. In other words, and I, again, I intimated to this earlier, this is not just the responsibility of your security team or nursing education or behavioral health or risk. This is really a multidisciplinary approach because all of those stakeholders, all those entities have skin in the game. Uh, the one area that actually is surprising and we're seeing more and more of it are uh, health centers of uh, physician practices where they too want this kind of training. They wanted it for their staff uh, you know, I think that uh, that fear uh, is starting to bleed into places where you never would expect it. Um, I was just at a, uh, a regional medical center here and we were talking about women's services and, uh, you know, the misperception amongst uh, some of the other staff where they said, why would we need to give training to, you know, uh, our women's services? They never have anything violent happening on or going on. The reality is to consider that, again, those patients, those family members are tired. They're, they've gone through uh, uh, traumatic events and difficult events, and you know, many yeah. times they're at their wit's end. Uh, so staff members having their own awareness of themselves and what's taking place with the patients and family members, those coupled together give them the best opportunity for keeping uh, situations from becoming truly violent events. Um, and obviously, you know, we've been talking about how, you know, the numbers are not good right now and, uh, you know, it seems to be on the, on the increase. Are you hopeful that, that the numbers can turn around with, you know, as you kind of, you know, spread your, you know, this, this education around to different facilities? 
Not, not only am I hopeful, I'm confident that we will. And the reason why I can say that is because, again, when we look at an organization like the Crisis Prevention Institute, there's a reason why we've been able to uh, enjoy the successes we've seen over 40 plus years. Uh, you know, it's interesting to me, uh, and it seems counterintuitive, when we go into organizations, we often will, uh, I'll actually tell uh, leadership, I want to see an increase in reports. I want to see an increase in reporting. And whilst on the surface that sounds counterintuitive, obviously what it's really drilling down to is that we want good data. Right. And when we see that data, then we start to see the, uh, the fruits of the, those efforts, the fruits of those investments. We know that our customers, uh, they enjoy reductions in uh, restraint events. They enjoy reductions in violent events when they're able to successfully implement our content. And again, it's a journey. It's one that doesn't uh, take place overnight. Uh, you know, it's not something that happens just for calendar year 2022. Right. One needs to uh, really take on the lens of we're going to start and this is a process that we will continue uh, over time. And you mentioned, uh, or I think before we even started talking, that uh, de-escalation is really the key, right? I think a de-escalation is the first step, uh, and, you know, recognizing it and then being able to de-escalate, or again, I use that word decelerate, slow down that situation. Um, you know, as, as professionals, we have a tendency to become very task-focused. We want, you know, we see what we need to do and let's get it done as quickly as possible because I've got a plate full. Right, move on to the next 200 thing. other tasks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the human condition doesn't always, uh, you know, agree with that, you know, that mindset. And as such, when we, you know, when we go in with that task focus, we need to be able to switch back to, all right, let's work on a relationship. Let's work on what are the needs of this person. And sometimes decelerating or slowing down that situation is as much about the person in crisis as it is the staff member. Mm -hmm. uh, because when they can slow down, then they can start to really understand or get a better uh, uh, understanding of what the environment is uh, providing and what I need to respond to. Because sometimes, you know, we may walk into situations and not know really what's going on. Right. Well, Gene, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been great. It's been my great pleasure. All right. That wraps up episode 67 of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time. You can find more information about the show and listen to on-demand episodes at psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and stay safe.